Well, God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today, and thanks so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there, so we bring that service to you, wherever you are, anywhere in Israel, anywhere in the world. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. You know, as I speak to you today, the world is in the middle of the deadly COVID-19 or the coronavirus battle. And I want you to know that all of us at Shepherd's Light are praying for you and your families and your friends and loved ones. Our prayers are for those who have lost loved ones and friends in this crisis and those who may be afflicted yourselves by the virus. You know, a few months ago, and certainly for several years now, many of the believers have been praying that the Lord would pour out His Spirit upon the peoples and save many in their own nations. We prayed for revival in our lands. No doubt that many felt that they were just praying for their neighborhood, maybe for their cities, for their states, for their countries. And even that seemed like a huge prayer request. And you wondered, should I be praying this big or not? You know, and yeah, is God wanting me to pray for something smaller? And you may have wondered if God would answer such a big request as that, or if that was something that was too big to pray. Well, now, today, we see that in a matter of weeks, God has stopped the entire world. What He has done has been truly global. He has transcended borders and boundaries. Virtually every nation on earth is affected. The rich and the poor are all alike. They seek hope from God. The tribes of all the earth cry out to God at this moment in time. The governments and the powerful are in just as much need as those whom they govern. Today, people everywhere are thinking about God and Many who never even sought Him before are doing so now. This virus is going to pass, and God's healing will intervene. And if you're watching this video from our website archives, at some point in time after this day in the future, you may recognize this virus as something that happened maybe in your past, a few months ago, a few years ago, and that is no longer a problem in your life. But at the time of this message, the virus is very real. But the Lord is presently moving mightily in the hearts and minds of all mankind. A dark trial is upon the nations. And, but His peace and His comfort and His power surround us and His love covers us over. In the darkness, He set a contrast. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is now recognizable in this crisis, and it stands alone as the way, the truth, and the life. It calls all to Him. Decisions at this very moment are being made everywhere. People are giving their lives to God because only He can save them. And we as His children, even though we're ourselves sinners saved by grace and mercy by God, we are set as lights in this world to shine His love as examples of those who have already received His forgiveness and mercy. And even in the time of this trial, though we too have many afflictions, inside we have a deep peace that He is with us. 
We go through the afflictions, but we still know that deep inside, He's with us, carrying us, seeing us through. He didn't necessarily bring this upon us. It's evil from our own sins and the world falling away from Him. But nonetheless, He is with us and He's guiding us and He's holding us up as we go through this. And we have His promises in the Word of God in the book of Romans that all of these things, even what the enemy sends against us as evil to harm us, God will turn it around and cause it to work for the good. So I just want you to consider this as we go through these trials and these times that are dark right now. You know, the stars of the heavens are always above us, even in the daytime. You may not realize it, but they are. And it's in that darkness, though, the darkness of the nighttime, that's when they're noticed. That's when they stand out and shine. Well, here's what I'm saying. Now is the time for you to shine. Today is the day of salvation. I'm praying for your hands not to fail. I'm praying for your legs to be strengthened as you hand out the bread of life to those around you who are hungry and seek hope in life. Soon you're going to be hearing the stories of your own children in the faith and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing through them. God is moving and many will be drawn to Him at this time. You, child of God, rest in His love and care. Rest in His love, my friends. As Psalm 46.10 says, simply be still and know that He is God. Exalt Him. See through the darkness to the lights that He is lighting right now and give Him praise. Even as we mourn with those who are mourning, His Holy Spirit fills us with comfort for both ourselves and to share with the weary that come across our paths, you see. His love will prevail. His love will prevail. Now, would you open in your Bibles to the New Testament? The New Testament today. We just finished the book of Genesis in the Torah. So open to the New Testament. Habrit HaChadashah. That's how we say the New Covenant. Bivrit, or in Hebrew. Habrit HaChadashah. And open up to the book of John, the Gospel of John. Not 1 John, 2 John, or 3 John, but the Gospel of John. So the books in the New Testament start off with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. It's that fourth book of the New Testament. That's where we're going to be today. And we'll also put these verses up here for you in the video, as you know, just to make it easier for you to follow along. I'd like to talk to you today about the bridge the bridge. Today we start a remarkable journey. We're going to be going back and forth between the Tanakh and the New Covenant as I've been telling you. We're going to see the beautiful tapestry that the Lord is weaving in the scriptures and the amazing story of His love for you that it tells. Beginning in the book of John in chapter 1 and verse 1, we're going to go through verse 14 today. Starting at verse 1 in John chapter 1, it sounds a lot like the book of Genesis started. It says, in the beginning, Bereshit, bara. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was the Word, it says in verse 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. 
in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, didn't understand it. There was a man, it says in verse 6, a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that we're talking about, that all through him might believe. He was not that light that we're talking about, but he was sent to bear witness of that light, the one who was coming. That was the true light that was giving light to every man who comes into the world. Verse 10 then continues, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a different birth, a birth in the Spirit. Then verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I want to talk to you today about these very, very important verses. In my last message to you, we finished the book of Genesis. Remember how it's said in Hebrew? The book of Genesis. Ha-sefer be-rashit. Ha-the-sefer. Book. Be-rashit. Beginnings. The book of beginnings. We finished the book of beginnings. But we also said it's not the end. In fact, it's just a beginning to the rest of the Word of God. It was the first book in the Torah, the first book in the Tanakh, and for believers, the first book of the Bible. But the prophecies of the Jewish Tanakh speak of a new covenant that God will bring to His people, to our people, the Jewish people, to Israel. And it's clear that these two covenants, the Tanakh and this new covenant, will work together to reveal the heart of God to us. So don't you let anyone tell you otherwise. God Himself promised this new covenant in the Tanakh in the book of Yeremiahu Hanavi, Jeremiah the prophet. In chapter Shloshim Vechad, in Perak Shloshim Vechad, Vepasuk Shloshim Vechad, Ad Shloshim Veshalosh. In chapter 31 of the book of Jeremiah in the Tanakh, in verse 31 through 33. In it, the Lord says, starting at verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant hmm, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in that day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Verse 33, he says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, after which days? After the days that he took Israel by the hand and led them out of Egypt and gave them the law, the first covenant. He said, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And the book in this new covenant that we're going to be looking at today speaks directly to the Jewish heart, 
talks directly to the Jewish mind. It speaks of some of the same things that the book of Genesis told us about in our last messages. In fact, this book that we'll be starting today, the book of John, is actually like a bridge that connects the Tanakh to the New Covenant. And in taking this bridge from the Tanakh to the New Covenant, we're not leaving the Tanakh behind. No, we're going to be going back and forth between the Tanakh and the New Covenant, showing the beautiful way that they support each other and build upon each other and interconnect with each other to give us a more beautiful understanding of God's heart, of His Word, and knowing how much He loves us. So this bridge that we're talking about now, this bridge in these first 14 verses of the Gospel of John, this bridge is our connection. It's a connection that allows us to go back and forth, visiting both of these places. For the Jewish heart, the bridge takes us from a close relationship to a closer relationship. What do you mean by that, Pastor Stephen? Well, taking the bridge that we're talking about between the Tanakh and the New Covenant, this takes us from being His people to being His children. We must never forget where we came from, but we are wonderfully blessed that we can now be in God's family, a member of His family and a child of God Most High. The first 14 verses of John speak as a serve as a bridge that ties the Tanakh together with the New Covenant, as we said. It also calls, uh, remember, the New Covenant is also called the New Testament by Christians. Or Todavar, Hebrew for it. It means the same thing, exactly the same thing. The New Covenant is exactly the same as New Testament. English speakers, you look it up in your dictionary. Covenant is Testament. Testament is Covenant. So when God said that in Jeremiah that he would uh, bring forth a new covenant to give to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Well, guess what word he used there? In Jeremiah the prophet, in the Tanakh, guess what word he used for the English of the new covenant? That's right, he used Brit Chadashah. He will bring forth a Brit Chadashah, a new covenant. And that's what we call the New Testament in Israel today. And you can get the little books of the New Covenant, and if you can read the Hebrew, it will say, Habrit HaChadashah, the New Covenant. It's right there, same exact words that are used by Jeremiah the prophet. Amazing that God sh uh, showed and spoke of the New Covenant all the way back in the Tanakh through Jeremiah the prophet. I love that. He gives himself witness. It shouldn't surprise us, though. We've already said that these two are going to work together. Well, it starts out by the Tanakh talking about the one that was coming, the new covenant. And now we're going to be going back and forth between them. You know, but some people, some Jewish people, believe that Christians are saying that this new covenant has replaced the Tanakh somehow. And Christians, you know the Tanakh is the Old Testament. But to the Jewish people, it's not old. It's, it's still valid, and you know what? To you also, it should, it's not really old. Uh, 
Maybe you should call it the Tanakh because really it's the things that God spoke about in the Old Testament, but we still use it today and we build upon the stories from both the Tanakh and the New Testament and they work together as we're saying. So if you're one of those Christians that think that God doesn't use that Tanakh anymore, you're mistaken. You need to open up that Tanakh and you need to read God's promise that every word of it will remain and still be His word. It's the word of God, just like Habrida Kadashah. There's things that the word of God uh, in the Tanakh were fulfilled in the Brit Kadashah. But they didn't delete them. They were simply fulfilled, so we're not under that law anymore. We'll get into that much later. But just as we said, the Tanakh and the New Covenant work together to communicate God's vital message to mankind. We need them both. That's what I'm saying. We need them both to get the full message that God wants to give us. God gave us prophecies in the Tanakh. Prophecies that spoke about man's sins and his need for a Savior. Then he spoke of this Savior that he would send to save man from his sin. He spoke of this Savior in his prophecies. For example, in Pesach, Passover as you would say in English, Passover is looked at by the Jewish people, my people, as a story of redemption from cruel oppression in Egypt. And certainly it's true that it is that. But in fact, the entire story of Passover, Pesach, is a story about the oppression of sin itself against mankind itself. And the judgment that mankind is due for because of sin in their life. It's a story about the atonement that is needed to take away the sin so that that judgment for sin is avoided. And that's why that blood was put okay, on the doorpost of the house on the night of Passover. And God said, when I see the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of your house, then I will pass over that house in judgment. Now think about this. The Hebrews, and that's how we called the Israelis at that time. They were called the Hebrews at that time. The Hebrews had to believe God when He told them to put the blood of a blemish-free lamb on the doorpost of the house. And when God said when He sees the blood, He would pass over that house in judgment, they had to believe Him that that's what would really happen, that when He saw that blood on the doorposts of their house that night, that uh, fatal night of judgment against Egypt and against Paro, Pharaoh, okay, that, that God would pass over that house that had the blood of the blemish-free lamb on the doorposts of the house. They had to believe God before they would do that and obey Him. If they didn't believe Him, they wouldn't do that. They would go like, I'm not going to do that. It's going to be fine. You know what? If they had done that, they would have been judged and they would be dead the next morning. Because it wasn't so much the matter that they were Hebrews. Yes, they were a called and chosen people of God, but they had to obey God. And God had told them strictly and warned them, put the blood on the doorpost of the house. And when I see that blood on the doorpost of the house, I will pass over that house in judgment. And that's why we call it Passover after all. But what would happen if he didn't see the blood? Well, obviously... He would not pass over that house in judgment. So even the Jewish people, even the Hebrews at that time had to put the blood on their doorpost of the house for God to pass over them in judgment. And that's why it's called Passover. Yes, it was about the oppression in Egypt of the Hebrews, but it was all about 
the, the oppression of sin in the lives of mankind and that sin brings forth judgment. And the same rule is true today, that when God sees the blood of the blemish-free sacrifice on the doorposts of our hearts, He will pass over us in judgment as well. You see where I'm going with this. The blemish-free sacrifice is God's Mashiach, the Messiah who was to come in the world. Jewish people know the Haggadah of Passover. They know it very well. They know every detail, every word of the Passover Seder. They know everything about it, and they know it, and they do it because they're told to do it. But many of them do not understand what it represents. When the people obeyed God, they put the blood of the doorposts on the doorpost of their house. They were showing that they believed God. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, we read it before as we were going through Genesis, God said of Abraham, of Enu, Abraham our father, earlier in the Torah, in Genesis 15, 6, God said Abraham believed God and that was accounted to him as righteousness. So believing is pretty important, you see. Believing God on what he says and what he does is pretty important. You see where I'm going with this? So if you believe him on his Mashiach, his Messiah that he was going to send to the people, Yeshua, the Mashiach, the Lord, then he will pass over you in judgment and give you everlasting life. That's important. So the people's act of putting the blood on the doorpost of their house demonstrated that they believed that they would be saved from judgment by the blood of the atonement of that blemish-free lamb. That atoning sin sacrifice on the doorpost of their house. What was that all about? That was prophetic foretelling of what God was going to do one day to permanently take away the sins of mankind so that they would not have to go through judgment. They would avoid being judged. He would save them from judgment. He would pass over them in judgment because he sees the blood of his son on the doorpost of their hearts. God would send his own son. God would become a man. He would give his life to save mankind. To save them from judgment and death, the death that sin brings. Just like the Passover lamb, he would take the sins of the people upon himself. But even though he was sacrificed as an offering for sin, death could not hold him because he had no sin of his own. So he was raised from the dead. He was willing to take our sins upon him. And by the way, he had to be a spotless, blemish-free sacrifice, one without sin. All mankind, everyone who's ever lived outside of him, apart from this Messiah that God would become, everyone who ever lived has had sin, so they couldn't be used. They had spot. They had blemish. And God would look them over to see if any sin was in their lives. He saw that there was no one that could become the sacrifice. And it says in the book of Isaiah, So he went forth and his own arm gained him the victory. What does that mean? He became a man and he lived a sinless life and he gave his life so that you and I could be passed over in judgment by simply believing God. And that would be accounted to us as righteousness. You see what I'm saying? Passover was always a memorial. But instead of memorializing something that was in the past, it was a memorial to something that God was going to do in the future. 
It all pointed to the time when God would send His promised Messiah and rescue man. And by the way, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew name Yeshua, and that's, that's how we call Jesus, Be'evrit, or in Hebrew, Yeshua, that's a Hebrew word. You know what it means? It means salvation, salvation of God. Yeshua is a rescuer, the salvation of God. In Genesis chapter 49, we were in this just a couple of three weeks ago. Genesis 49 verse 18, Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. And Jacob says in verse 18, he just says, just in the middle of blessing his son, he had a thought and he just looks off into the distance and he goes to the Lord and he says, Lord, I have waited for your salvation. That wasn't part of the blessing. It was just Jacob thinking about how God had been faithful to him and he knew that God was going to send the Messiah. Well, in the Hebrew, that verse in Genesis 49, 18, I want to read it to you, Be'evrit, in Hebrew. It says, Le Yeshuartcha Kevuti Hashem. Le Yeshuartcha Kevuti Hashem. And it means, For your Yeshua I have waited, Lord. Hashem, we replace there, of course, when we see yud heh vav -Heh, the four-letter name of God that is unpronounceable because we didn't have the Nikodot to tell us how to pronounce it. So the Jewish people substitute the name simply Hashem, which means Ha is the, Shem is name. So it's the name. So they call God the name. So it's that verse, Genesis 49, 18 says, Artcha, artcha on the end means your, so Yeshua, artcha, your Yeshua, for your Yeshua, for your salvation of God, I have waited, kevuti, Hashem, Lord, for your Yeshua, I have waited. Wow, Jacob, talking about Yeshua, all the way back in the Torah in Genesis 49, verse 18, and guess what? God speaks of the Messiah many times throughout the Tanakh in this way because Jesus' very name in Hebrew means Yeshua or salvation of the Lord, the salvation of God. In fact, throughout the Tanakh, his name is shown in this way. Yeshuartcha, speaking to the Lord, your Yeshua, your salvation, your salvation from God. And the Torah describes the beginning of creation and the fall of sin. But the New Covenant describes the beginning of salvation and God's plan to save you from sin. In the Tanakh, in Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 53, God's Word says that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, will sacrifice his life for the sins of the people. But then it says he lives forever in that it mentions that he will see the result of his sacrifice and be happy. Well, how can he be happy if he's dead? Because he's going to live forever because he was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of God the Father on high. Now, a Jewish commentator from the 1200s named Rashi is a popular commentator used by the rabbis today. Rashi said that the suffering servant is not really the Messiah, but it's really the nation of Israel. And today, a lot of rabbis listen to what Rashi had said about this because they have a problem they need to solve, honestly. They, they have a problem that they can't solve unless they listen to Rashi. You see, Isaiah 53 tells the story 
of a righteous Messiah. That's what the verses say, that he is a righteous person, a righteous Messiah. Well, the interesting thing is, is two times in the book of Psalms, one time in the book of Isaiah, God already says that his eyes went to and fro throughout the entire earth, trying to find any that were righteous all the time, righteous and truly good and seeking God always. And each of those verses said, and he found none, no, not one. Isaiah then, as we already said, says that God himself then went forward and his own arm gained him the victory. In other words, he became the righteous man that needed to be atoning for the sins of mankind. Sin entered the world through Adam, Adam, in the first few chapters of Genesis, you see. Sin entered the world through man, so it had to be atoned for through man. But there was no qualifying man that was sinless. So the blood of a sinful man would be blemished sacrifice and that you could not put that blood on the doorpost of your heart by believing in that one. But if God became a man, which he can do, and we'll talk about that in a minute. If God became a man and then he lived that sinless life and then gave his life for us and took our sins upon himself, then by believing in him, we can become saved, as it said in Genesis 15, 6. Then our sins will be accounted as forgiven and we will be accounted as righteous. Didn't say that we were righteous because we lived a life full of sins, but we would be accounted as righteous. All the books would be clean. The balance would be paid. The balance would now be zero. We don't owe anything because the Messiah's blood is on the doorpost of our hearts and all of our sins have been paid for by his sacrifice. You see why believing is so important. You know, but then the people would ask the rabbis, well, why don't you believe in him then? Because the rabbis that were before Rashi certainly believed that Isaiah 53 was talking about the Messiah. And the people would come up to these rabbis and they would say, well, why don't you believe in him then if it's talking about the Messiah? Because it looks like it describes Yeshua's life. We see what happened with Yeshua. He gave his life for the sins of the people. We see, and he was abused, and he was rejected by our own people, just like Isaiah 53 says. And it looks like he was raised from the dead, and now he ever lives to make intercession for us. And by believing on him, we can be righteous. And that's what Isaiah 53 is saying. So the people come up to the rabbis and say, so why don't you believe in him then? Then along comes Rashi, in the 1200s and looks the situation over and he decides that from now on he was going to be teaching that the righteous servant is not Yeshua. Instead, Rashi claims that the righteous suffering servant is Israel. There, problem solved, or so Rashi hoped. But the highly respected Jewish scholars that came before Rashi didn't buy it. They didn't think so. They had always understood chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah to be talking about the Messiah and that he would suffer to bring atonement for the people. In fact, the key to disproving Rashi's interpretation is contained in a verse right before Isaiah 53, just a few verses before in Isaiah 52, verse 13. God says he's not, he's not saying that his servant is his people Israel. In fact, he speaks to the nation of Israel 
in Isaiah 52, 13, he speaks to the nation of Israel and tells them about his real suffering servant when he says it like this. He says in Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And then he says to his nation Israel, Just as many were astonished at you, he's speaking to Israel there, so his visage, so his form, he's saying now about his servant, his form was marred more than any man. He was abused. He was hurt. He was cut. He was wounded. And his form more than the sons of men. And verse 15 then says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. And kings shall shut their mouths at him. And what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. So you see, Isaiah 52, 13 through 15 disproves what Rashi was trying to say that, oh no, that suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that's really the nation of Israel. No, a couple of verses right before Isaiah 53 starts, when God starts talking about that suffering servant, he says to Israel, Israel, just as many were astonished at you because of your suffering, so my righteous servant will suffer and his form will be marred more than any man. Then he goes into Isaiah 53 and describes what his suffering servant, his righteous servant will do. No, it's talking about the Messiah. And all the rabbis of that time knew that. They knew that Rashi uh, was trying to win the argument against the Christian scholars who were saying that, look, Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah. And Rashi was saying, no, 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 it doesn't. It talks about Israel. But actually a few verses before Isaiah 53, God is saying, no, it doesn't. It doesn't talk about Israel. I'm talking to Israel about my suffering servant. That's what's going on here. That's what God said. The interesting thing is that this is found in the book of Isaiah in the Tanakh. The book of Isaiah, Hasefer Yeshayahu, God rebukes Israel for their unrighteousness many, many times in the book of Isaiah. In fact, their sins are listed throughout the book of Isaiah. You can read it and see. Don't take my word for it. So how can Israel be considered the righteous servant? Rashi couldn't answer that, you see. Now, just because God rebuked Israel for its unrighteousness... That doesn't mean that God is finished with Israel. No, not by a long shot. The Bible teaches that Israel is a special treasure to God and that soon He will do wonderful and amazing and mighty things through them. Through God's mercy, their sins will one day be forgiven when they turn to Him and seek His forgiveness. And the Bible prophesies and predicts that that day is coming. What a glorious day that will be. But the verses we just quote, do make it clear that when God is talking about the righteous suffering servant in Isaiah 53, that he's not talking about Israel, but another truly righteous person, the Messiah, the one that God became a man to save mankind through. So like the Jewish sages of old, we do believe that Isaiah 53 is talking about this Messiah who would give his life for the sins of the people, just as Isaiah 53 predicted, and that those prophecies are precisely fulfilled in the life of Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. And again, remember that the name of Yeshua means salvation of God. So that's important. 
Then finally in the scripture, we, as we read earlier, we see John 1 verse 14, the last verse that we read earlier in our passage for today. And John 1 verse 14 says, God became a man. It says, right? It says the word that they said the word in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then on down from verse 1 and 2 in John, it says in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man. Remember, it says in the first verses there, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. It says that. And then down in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Tie it together, connect the dots. God became a man. Now, obviously, we need to talk about the idea that God can become a man. Right, my Jewish brothers and sisters? Now, some rabbis say God can't become a man. They say God can't fit into a man's body. And, but God says that he fills the universe. For that matter, then, how can God fit in the universe? He's infinite. The universe is finite. Oh, it's big. But we know it has an end. It's roughly 13.8 billion years is what scientists describe to the age of the universe. And who knows, you know, what the real numbers are and everything. But we know that it has an end because they know that it had a beginning. They know that it had a beginning. That's called the Big Bang. You say, well, God created everything. You know what? There's a lot of scientists that believe that the Big Bang is how he created it. Because basically what they say is at first there was nothing and then it exploded. How did that happen? Two laws of physics. One says an object at rest tends to stay at rest until acted upon by an outside force. Who's the outside force? It then says an object in motion tends to stay in motion until acted upon by an outside force. Who's the force? In the beginning was nothing and then it exploded. And 99% of all astrophysicists and cosmologists today, and I'm an amateur astronomer, I study the science, they all believe that the Big Bang happened. In other words, that it had a beginning. As much as science really can't figure out how this happened, they say it's true. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. Look, it really comes down to this. Is anything too difficult for God? Of course not. God is almighty. With God, all things are possible. In fact, the Torah itself proves that God can and indeed did become a man. Look at Genesis 18 in the story of Abraham, of Inu, Abraham our father. While Abraham saw three men walking toward his tent that day as he was standing in the door of the tent, and he started talking with them, but he knew something was different about them. The Bible tells us that it was two angels and the Lord who were walking, but Abraham called them men. Hmm. Looks like God became a man at that time. Walking with the angels. Hmm. Can angels become a man, a man too? Yeah, I guess they can. Because two of those were walking with the Lord. How do I know it was the Lord? How do I know it's the Lord, Stephen? Well, simply because Genesis chapter 18 tells us what Abraham called one of those men. He called him Lord. And when the three men came on their way to Sodom, Abraham called one of those men the Lord, and he also worshipped him as the Lord. And the man to whom he spoke received that worship as the Lord. 
Now, in all other instances in the Bible, when a man mistakenly tried to worship an angel, that man was rebuked by the angel and told to worship God instead. This didn't happen in Genesis 18. The man whom Abraham worshipped and called Lord, he received that worship and didn't, did not rebuke Abraham. Abraham did speak to one of the three men who came to him that day and he called him Lord, the Creator. Abraham worshipped him. So the only conclusion that we can come to in this story in Genesis 18 is that yes, God can become a man. And that shouldn't surprise any of us. After all, God is God. He can do anything He wants to. Your errors in your theology won't stop God from doing whatever He desires to do. And if the accounts in the Bible don't match your theology, well, guess what? Don't try to change God to match your theology. No, you go back to the drawing board, change your theology to match the Word of God. Because the Word of God is true and it will endure long after you're gone. So then, to end this discussion, we can all go back to the beginning. In fact, to the book of beginnings, I said for a better sheet, in the book of Genesis, all the way back to Perakechad, chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. In there, the Word of God begins to reveal the awesome nature of God and how He exists and how it's far different than we are, higher than our thoughts, His ways far higher than our abilities to understand and reason them, you see. Let's take a look at those two verses in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. It says, and pay attention to this, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, our friend Rashi shows up here again. And Rashi has a problem with this because, again, Christians are saying, see, God is three in one. He's, he's more than just one, but yet he's one somehow. And Rashi doesn't know what to say about this, so he comes up with another interpretation, kind of like he did as Israel is in is a suffering servant. We, we know that's not true now. We prove that's not true. But now Rashi says here, well, you see, God wasn't talking to himself and the other members of the Trinity. God was talking to the angels. Yeah, that's it. God was talking to the angels. Rashi tries to explain his logic like this. Anytime you're starting something really important, it's good to get the counsel and help of other people. And that's why God was talking to the angels. But the scripture itself proves Rashi wrong here again too. Here's why. First of all, God didn't seek the help of anyone else when he made the heavens and the earth and the stars and the universe and all the heavenly bodies. That was a pretty big important project, right? That was a pretty big project, correct? No, Genesis 1.1 just says God did it by himself. You remember the verse. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. No help from the angels. It says that God did it, He did it alone. Then in Genesis 1.26, as we just read, it said, God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Hmm, 
Look at those words. God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Rashi says he's talking to the angels. But then notice that God himself did it, and the Hebrew is very clear. Hebrew readers will recognize what we're saying. In the next verse it says, Vaivra Elohim et ha'adam betzamo betzalem Elohim bara'oto. And the Lord God, singular, third person singular, past tense, and the Lord God himself made man in his image, in his singular person image, in the image of God, Barauto, he, single person, past tense, created him. Vaivra Elohim, Heda Adam, Betzamo Betzalem Elohim, Barauto. No angels there helping him. It only says God himself did it. You look at the Hebrew, that's what it says. You know I'm true. You know what I'm saying. If he said, let us do this to the angels, as Rashi said, this would have been the first time in Genesis 1 when God said, let something happen, that it didn't happen exactly as he said it was going to. And that means that the angels must have rebelled and refused to obey God. But the scriptures never speak of that disobedience. You see, these are the problems with Rashi's interpretation of Genesis 1.26. But the Jewish sages before Rashi, which were considered more knowledgeable about the original intent of the scriptures, they did not interpret these verses like Rashi said. It seems that Rashi just tried to come up with an interpretation that could be used to argue against Christian scholars who took these verses to speak about the amazing and complex and different existence of God as one God that is yet somehow three in one. You know, ironically, even the Jewish holy book of mysticism, the Zohar, Jewish holy book of Zohar also speaks of this amazing existence of God and how it's beyond the comprehension of man. You won't hear these things very much from the rabbis, but they know it exists. And it says in the Zohar, the Jewish holy book on mysticism and Jewish mysticism, it says the mystery in the word yud heh what you would call Yahweh, which the Jewish people pronounces Hashem, it's that unpronounceable word of uh, name of God, Yud, He, Vav, He, or the four Jewish letters. The mystery, it says in the Zohar, the mystery in the word Yud, He, Vav, He, there are three steps, each existing by itself. Nevertheless, they are one and are so united that they cannot be separated from the other. The same holy and ancient one appears as three heads within one. And he is the head elevated three times. The ancient holy one described as three and also the other lights which are delegated from his source are included in the three. Wait a minute. That is the Jewish holy book, the Zohar, that says that. And it agrees with what we call the three-in-one being the one God. But wait, there's more. What about the Shema? You know the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Echad. 
You know it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But notice what the Zohar says. Did you notice that God's name appears three consecutive times in the Shema? Look at it again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. The three are one. Did you notice that God's name appears three consecutive times? And the Jewish Soar explains that that expression, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, is actually the three who are one. Wow. Then finally we end with this. If you still think that God should be just like you, Existing as you exist, consider the first chapter in the Tanakh of the book of Yehezkel Hanavi, Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel the prophet sees a vision in the glory of the Lord. He describes the creatures that are around the throne of God and under the presence of the Lord. And Look at what Ezekiel says he saw. It says in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the thirteenth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river Chebar, that the heavens were opening and I saw the visions of God on the fifth day of the month, which was in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. The word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, and the, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chebar, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Verse 4. Then I looked, Ezekiel says, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. Brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, out of the midst of a fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. Pay attention now. And this was their appearance. Oh, pay attention now. They had the likeness of a man. Each one had four faces. Each one had four wings. Their legs were straight and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but they went each one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, it says in verse 10, oh, keep, keep attention here. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man. Each, had the, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward. Two wings of each one touched one another and two covered their bodies and each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go and they did not turn when they went. Verse 13, As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright and out of the fire went lightning and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like the flash of lightning. Verse 15, Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. 
Verse 16, the appearance of the wheels and their working was like the color of beryl. And all four had the same likeness. The appearance of the workings of the wheels, you see, was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And when they moved, they went forward. They went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high that they were awesome. And their rims, listen to this, and their rims were full of eyes around all four of them, all around the four of them. Verse 19, when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels lifted up. Whenever, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted up together with them for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Alrighty then. What does all this mean? Simply this. As we read these verses from the Tanakh describing what Yehezkel Anavi, what Ezekiel the prophet saw, can you imagine what these creatures looked like? As I was reading that, were you trying to draw a mental image, a picture of how these would look? Of course you were. That's how we work. Did you see where it said those wheels are covered with eyes? Did you see the different faces that the creatures had? Mm. And you think you know how God exists? Let me ask you a question. If you can't understand how these creatures around God's throne exist, how can you claim that you understand how God himself exists? Can he somehow be three and yet one at the same time? I think the Tanakh has just answered that question for us. Yes, God is far above what you and I can understand. Yes, we are made in His image in that we have an eternal spirit. But God exists far beyond what you and I can imagine or understand. So stop trying to make God look like you and start worshiping Him as God. The one who is far above you. The one who is not comprehensible. The one who is infinitely above all that you can think or imagine. Could God become a man to save mankind from the eternal judgment of sin because He created us to be His children to Him and live with Him forever? Sin take us, takes us away from Him, but He came to give an atonement for our sins that we could be restored to His presence because He loves us greatly. Can God become a man? Yes, He can. And yes, He did. In the person of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. And that's why the Jewish Mashiach is the most important person who ever lived. The most famous Jewish person who ever existed. God became a man. A man whose life changed civilization more than any other person who's ever lived. A man whose life split time itself into two parts. A part before his life and a part after his life. Can this man become the Messiah? Can God become a man to save his beloved people? Yes, he can. And yes, he did. And he can save all who believe on him. Like it says again in Genesis 15, 6... Uh, about Abraham of Abraham, Avinu, Abraham, Abraham our father, and Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him as righteousness. No other works. No sheshmot shaloshes re mitzvot. No other works. No 613 commands. Abraham believed God, and that, that 
believing God. And that was accounted to him as righteousness. Do you believe in God's salvation? Do you believe God and what he said about his Mashiach, Yeshua, that he sent? Do you believe in Yeshua as Mashiach and Lord? It's the most important question you'll ever have to answer. Believing in him will cause God to account you as righteous. And you'll be given everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. Have you believed? Have you put the blood of the blemish-free Lamb of God on the doorposts of your heart so that God will pass over you in judgment? Have you believed? Today is the day of salvation. Today, believe and be saved. Why don't you give your life to God today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry and He'll answer you and He'll rescue you from that darkness that you're in and He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given a new life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all those past failures away. You'll be made completely new, given a new start. And He'll give you everlasting life in heaven and that's guaranteed by God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as Messiah and Lord today. To receive God's peace in your life. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. If you'd like, you can just repeat after me, but speak from the heart. Speak to God. Just say, God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I'll tell you something. God heard you. Even now, He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down inside your heart. Over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your life. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him in His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life. <music>